This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about the internet. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're going to talk about the negative, visible, legal aspects of the internet. Womp, womp. Sad. Well, not yes. actually sad, because we, as usual, have concrete-ish uh, proposals for things we ought to do and why we ought to do them. So, Yeah, people should just like hire us to be part of someone's cabinet and make good decisions. That'd be great. <laughs> Uh, so we're talking today, and we'll start out with a bit of some definitional and technical overview because it's going to be helpful and necessary. We're talking today about regulation of the internet, and we want to use this as something of a window into ideas about regulation in general. Depending on where you land in your various political alignments, you think may think that government regulations are awesome or that government regulations are terrible and they're destroying everything that's good about the world. We don't think either of those is true. Our core thesis for this episode is that the question is not so much whether something is regulated, though there are times and places where regulating a particular thing may be wrong, but rather what kinds of regulations are in play and what are the effects of those regulations. So basically, it's not the quantity of the regulations, it's the quality of the regulations. Right. So you can have really effective, small number of regulations and a really ineffective number of small regulations and mm-hmm. vice versa. Like it, the quantity to us is not as important as understanding what those laws actually are and what they do and how they open spaces or close spaces for what we think is a well-running internet. Right. And the internet is our window here, as I said, into the broader ecosystem, because many of the things we'll say here will be very specific to the internet. But the broad ideas we get at are intended to be more broadly applicable. The particular things we're going to look at today are ideas around net neutrality and around local reselling or not of internet connections. And both of these are ideas that have been much debated in public in the last few years. Both of them are ideas where you have some degree of attempt to regulate the internet, which is a big scary thing to some people and a really exciting thing to some people. And the reasons for those are complicated. But first of all, what do we mean by them? Net neutrality is at its most basic, the idea that a given provider of the internet, whether that's AOL, or whether that's Time Warner Cable, or whether that is Cox, or whoever your local provider may be. Google Fiber! AT&T, Verizon, all, all the big players, is not allowed to prioritize something else offered by their company, say Verizon Video, or Cox Cable Video, or something like that, over and above traffic from, say, Netflix. This as we'll discuss, has been much argued. But the basic idea of net neutrality is, look, you're providing a service that is meant to basically be what we call a dumb pipe. We want you to treat everything that comes across it the same way so that Cox services don't get special priority just because Cox happens to be the one who owns the cable. We don't want Cox to be in a position where they charge you more money to deliver Netflix than they do to deliver Cox's own video because, well, that seems kind of anti-competitive. 
Similarly, there's an open question, much debated right now, about how to create or whether we even need more competition at a local level of who supplies the internet. So we just listed a bunch, but the reality is that most people in most places only have one or at most two options from for where they get their internet from. Maybe you have AT&T, U-verse, and Cox, but it's very unlikely that you have more than two. And in many places, you don't have even two. Right. So there have been a number of proposals on how to tackle this from cities deciding that they want to build their own infrastructure to Google saying, hey, we're going to do fiber, or maybe not, though that's an episode for a different day, Yep. to the idea of local loop unbundling, which says that the internet providers who build out the cables are free to sell their own service, but for the quote-unquote last mile, the actual delivery of service to your door with perks or not that go with it, they have to allow others to lease that infrastructure from them and sell it to you as basically competition. These things have all been much debated and controversial for reasons we're about to get into. Right. But we wanted to make sure you had some idea what we were talking about when we said net neutrality or local loop unbundling or even competition in this case, because it is a complicated space. Right. And part of what we want to set out is that we have a specific vision of what a well-working internet looks like. Pretty much everyone in this space in these arguments has a vision of what the internet looks like. And Mm -hmm. so the arguments for these particular regulatory policies come out of those situations. So if you're a telecom company, then you are thinking specifically and only about these are our material assets and we want to make as much money as possible from them. Which is relatively reasonable. Which is reasonable. If you're a consumer, you want to have the best possible deal given to you, and the best possible service with as little disruption and friction as possible, which means that you have a very different definition of what good internet means, as opposed to a telecom company's idea of good internet. Mm -hmm. If you're a person who is interested in the internet as a civil good, then you have a very different idea of what a well-working internet means. It means one that's accessible and open and available for people to use at low cost and in ways that can help them do certain things in their life, either you know job employment type things or various other legal services or these sorts of aspects of the internet that people can use to further their civil life. Right. If you're a company like Netflix, which uses the internet but does not own any of the infrastructure at all, you want the internet to be a place where you can do business. You want it to be an open forum or an agora or a space where you can trade without being penalized for trading in that space. Mm-hmm. And so you want that to be neutral. And so that's why if you're Reed Hastings – And Netflix, then you very much want the internet to be neutral. You do not want to be penalized for taking up what some people have estimated a quarter to a third of the internet at all times (laughs) with Netflix. That's crazy. (laughs) That's absurd. Uh, If you put that in YouTube together, man. It's a lot. Video takes up a lot of space on the internet, which is why people like Google and people like Netflix have a very different expectation of what a well-working internet looks like. Mm -hmm. So you have all of these people, all of these entities combining on what does the internet mean. Mm -hmm. So... Chris, what does Winning Slowly think that a well-working internet (laughs) looks like? 
so a well-working internet should have a number of basic outcomes. And these are these are hard to get to, but I, I think we do have some ideas how to get there. One, it should provide consistent and reliable access, which doesn't mean it has to be the fastest in the world, but it does need to be consistent and reliable. And speed does matter to some extent here. Mm-hmm. Being on dial-up is neither consistent nor reliable for, for a lot of this. So that people can do, as we discussed back in our library episode, the kinds of things that the internet is good for learning. And whether that's learning to code, whether that's learning to bake by watching videos on YouTube, as it were, any of these kinds of things. We want people to have consistent and reliable access for learning new skills, for doing their jobs. I work remotely as a software developer. I literally can't do my job if the internet goes down, Mm -hmm. which means there are days when I hate Time Warner cable. But we think consistency and reliability are a big part of it. Another big factor is the free market aspect of it. And I don't mean that in the sort of generic free market, invisible hand sense that is often batted around. What I mean specifically is people can use the internet to distribute services and goods. If you are the next Netflix, because now you're some up and coming startup who has a pioneering vision for how you're going to use VR to teach people to bake cookies in their own home, Mm -hmm. your access shouldn't be restricted based on the fact that say Verizon wants to do VR and is going to penalize your bits in favor of their own bits because they want to make more money. The internet in terms of access to data, should just be data. Bits should be bits and not treated differently based on source, based on the amount of money exchanging hands for who is providing the content, etc. Because that levels the playing field dramatically for up-and-coming entrants. Right. Third, and equally importantly with those ones, we want internet provision to be a competitive field because that makes much likelier that people will have those aforementioned attributes. We want there to be some degree of competition for who actually is your internet service provider because competition in that specific scenario adds incentives for the people providing your internet to increase the speed, to find better ways of getting more speed to you, to thereby therefore making the technology and infrastructure investments that make that possible. Right. And if company A wants to try finding ways to incentivize you to watch their content rather than company B's content. They have to do that while taking into account that someone else might be selling you the ISP costs and you might just be saying, hey, you know what? I get Netflix better via ISP B instead of ISP A because ISP A wants me to watch their company's stuff instead. That kind of competition makes those former goals easier. Right. Now you may be thinking, what about zero rating of sports and stuff? That's already happening. And that's sort of an inverted way to get around net neutrality. Instead Mm -hmm. of making other people pay more for other things, you can make your stuff freer. It's not really freer in a sense. It's sort of freer in that you're still paying the same amount (laughs) for the same data, but you get a sort of a coupon or a a voucher essentially for more data which means that while it's not costing you money it's incentivizing you to watch their stuff via data and so chris and i have actually had long long conversations about zero rating mm-hmm. and we are split on the issue so <laughs> we're 
we are gonna we're gonna push that one off and say with definition that it is in the strictest way possible a violation of net neutrality, but it might not be the most dangerous one. Right. So those are kind of our big overview. Here are the things we would like kinds of ideas. But where we actually think the interest is, is how you accomplish these things. Because what has been most contentious in all of this has been the question of whether government regulations of internet policy like this are actually good. Should the government on the one hand, be able to say, no, Charlotte, North Carolina, you're not allowed to build out your own internet provision because that's quote-unquote anti-competitive, which is a thing that the North Carolina state government did. Similarly, should the government be able to come in and say, net neutrality is to be enforced, no one may prioritize their own video service over Netflix, for example. And both of these are kinds of regulations, but those two regulations, we argue, have the opposite effect from each other. And this is the point. Do regulations tend to create or inhibit better functioning markets? Do they enable or do they prohibit the free development of infrastructure in these kinds of things or innovation in the area? So, for example, when North Carolina comes and says to Charlotte, no, you can't create your own local ISP as a city, even though the citizens of Charlotte as a city said, we're getting terrible service, we're just going to fund this with taxpayer money. Well, what the state is actually doing there is, in the name of competition, preventing there from being any competition, because it's saying, as a city, you're not allowed to compete with Cox or Time Warner or whomever else. Now, there is a variable here that if Charlotte kicks out all the other providers and says, we are the only person who can provide internet in this space, Mm -hmm. like no one else is allowed, then you start to get into questionable areas because then you're also stifling market Mm -hmm. competition. Competition. So we're not saying that all cities should be able to just like have their own internet and and that would be a solution to the problem. Again, we're not looking for more regulation or less. We're looking for the right sorts of regulation. So the city should be able to offer internet and anybody else who wants to offer internet and people via local loop unbundling should have multiple choices at their point of service. So there should be AT&T pipes and Cox pipes, but then also uh, companies A, B, and C on on AT&T pipes and companies D, E, and F on Cox pipes. There should be more choices. That's because that will cause variation in how people market themselves, how people uh, put together their products. So in the same way that cell phone companies have multiple different plans and they have multiple different ways that they're trying to draw you from one company to another company, that level of competition should be happening at a local level for internet. And you may think, well, there's only like Verizon and Sprint and T-Mobile and AT&T. Well, no, there's <laughs> actually like Cricket and all of the the minor local regional ones. Mm-hmm. And then even some major cities have their own sort of networks that they've developed that are the the totally cheap ones. And then you have the Walmart one. So there's actually a really large amount of cell phone providers 
that you can access if you really look for them if you have different specific needs. Right. That's the sort of thing we want for the internet. And the reason that exists in the cell phone market is precisely because there are very carefully applied regulatory pressures which require the large providers to resell their service. So the MVNO program, which supplies things like Republic Wireless or Ting or others of these that you may or may not have heard of, exists precisely because there's a very carefully tuned bit of regulation that increases the market here. So one of the common refrains you will hear from certain segments of the popular level treatments of market economics is the idea that all regulation stifles markets. But what we actually see is that in the general internet market, there's not been much regulation and there's not much competition because, well, utility-like services tend toward monopoly just because of the infrastructure costs, etc. Right, as Google Fiber is finding out right now. (laughs) But very lightly applied and thoughtfully constructed regulation in that space specifically allows a great deal of competition to appear and to flourish. And what we see there, among other things, is that different regulation is appropriate for different markets. Right. So you might not need the same kinds of regulations on, say, produce for a grocery store because – There's not a natural monopoly on land where you can grow produce, at least not presently. Monsanto might want there to be in the future, but we're not there today. Right. And so there's natural competition in that space. If you're a local grown farmer, maybe your costs are higher, but you can differentiate yourself on other ways, etc. Different markets look different. Different regulation is appropriate for different markets. Right. And one thing that's important to note is that Even though there are many, many different cell phone providers, Verizon still makes what might be called a metric butt ton of money. (laughs) Ludicrous profits. Lots of money. So because there's competition, that doesn't mean that Verizon has been driven to the ground. It means that they have had to differentiate Mm -hmm. in various ways. And they have had to ride the coattails of T-Mobile, who, by dint of being the fourth largest, have to come up with increasingly bizarre things to to do, like uh, that all of North America is now free if you're a T-Mobile person. You can call Canada and Mexico and not have international charges. That's because they have to differentiate themselves some way. So mm-hmm. that level of, of variance allows there to be big companies that have standard, easy-to-access sorts of things, as well as small companies that have very niche-specific types of offerings, and that's worthwhile for the internet. The reason that those two industries haven't developed the same way is because of one of them looks like landline phones, only slightly different, and so was subject to a different type of regulatory framework historically. Mm -hmm. And one of them didn't have a whole lot of clear precedent and so has sort of evolved almost in a vacuum of policies. And where there have been historical precedent policies, they have been dragged over from landlines in some ways and also from some other things that are even less connected to internet policy as a whole, or the internet as a whole. So that's one reason that the regulations of those two industries look different, and why we would support them being pushed more back towards the way most cell phone policy works, because Mm -hmm. even though the internet and cell phones are different, they are 
similar products in that they offer communication and information over certain bandwidths for people who need it. And if you're skeptical, as we mentioned briefly back in Series 4, actually, other countries have tried this. Britain, for example, has done local loop unbundling as a way of increasing market-type activity in the ISP space. And it works really well. There are more choices with lower prices for higher-speed internet in the UK than there are in the United States of America because there's more competition. Intriguingly, their cell phone market is worse, though, but that's another day. (laughs) So again, the idea is not so much, yay, regulation, but rather, is there a need for regulation in this market? And if so, what does it look like? What should it look like? In the context of food, that might look like uh, if you want to sell at thus and such a level, distribute nationally, you have to demonstrate that your food passes FDA standards because we don't want you getting people all over the country sick. Mm-hmm. It, that's a very different kind of regulation than saying you have to resell your internet or you have to sell uh, access to your line at the same rate with no particular perks to yourself just because you happen to be in two businesses, et cetera. Right. And so one of the pushbacks against this is, hey, man, we laid the pipe. We want to dictate what goes through it. And this is a material argument. It is Mm -hmm. that is our thing. We want to control it. The nature of that argument is pretty solid if the information that goes through it is not a civil or public good. And so this is the part of the internet policy that that gets a little wonky because the internet was originally a military idea that turned into a civil and public good that got co-opted by uh, industry to develop it to a uh, meaningful size so that it could be put across the entire United States. But all of those things still exist in that... It's not any one of those things. It's all of them. Right. And so the fact that individual companies did indeed lay pipe does not preclude the fact that it was originally intended to be a public good and in many ways is still a public good Mm -hmm. and in some ways is becoming one of the few public spaces that people have left. It's also worth note that most of that pipe that was laid was laid with tax incentives. So it's also been publicly funded in nearly every foot that's been laid in the United States, which is right. often conveniently overlooked by the people making that specific claim. Right. There's also the, the problem where the American government has given telecom companies a lot of money to put internet in various places, which they still refuse to do. Not profitable enough, they say. We gave you tax breaks for it because we knew that, we say. Nope, they say. Grr, we say. Grr, grr indeed. <laughs> so there are interrelated, intermeshed levels of these different idea points or these different trajectories that make it complicated. Mm -hmm. So it is true that companies own things. It is also true that the American public funded some of those things. It is also true that the military is over there like, guys, we invented this in the 60s. (laughs) And so we should be able to surveil it. And we're like, well, you know, like, it's a little bit different than it used to be. It's not exactly that anymore. So there's that's part of the problem that makes regulation difficult is that there are all of these different points coming together. And that's part of the 
you know, the structure agency problem that we've touched on lightly in this particular episode, but that is the overarching theme of this season is that having a specific viewpoint and a specific policy point put forward into a space does not necessarily mean that that one's going to win. I mean, that's a pedestrian idea, but that's what is is worked out here is that there are lots of different policy ideas and there are lots of different understandings of the internet that are conflicting. And just because people have a voice and there are lots of voices in this conversation does not mean that you will win all the time. Right. So as we talked about in our previous episode about civil forfeiture and how building networks of of influence and building groups that can come together and work towards issues, you don't always win, which sucks. <laughs> it's true. But that's sort of the the moral of the story on this particular issue is that there are people that have reasonable, maybe not justifiable, but reasonable views on how net neutrality and other internet policies should work, and they're just not going to get their voices heard. And right. it will go back and forth, and some will go up and some will go down, but just because you have a strong, coherent argument group does not mean that it will necessarily win by dint of it existing. Right. The other big takeaway is to recognize that the reason that internet policy in this case is we think in that negative visible and legal category, legal because, well, these policies are legal policies, visible because we all deal with it all the time, and negative because largely we're all dealing with the fallout from there not being competition in some of these spaces or from companies trying to stop or choke out competition in some of these spaces. It's not a function of there being, as we said from the outset, regulation or not. It is very specifically a function of which regulations and how they're applied. And so Mm -hmm. as you're thinking about the relationship between markets and governments, remember that all markets markets function in the context of some degree of regulatory policy, even down at the most basic level of you have to honor your contracts. That's a legal policy that's enforced by the government. Mm -hmm. The the existence of regulatory policies are not in and of themselves always bad. The question is which policies applied in what ways. And so if you want to have a positive visible legal infrastructure, you have to think about the consequences of the policies and how to apply them with a more or less light touch, depending on the specific context, etc. So don't assume that markets and regulations are always in tension. Instead, recognize that markets often exist because of regulations, but that not every market is the same. Right. The only reason an oil market exists at all in America <laughs> is because we broke up Standard Oil in the, the early 1900s. Otherwise, Standard Oil would almost certainly still be around, still be a monopoly, and probably own significant port- <laughs> yeah, significant portions of the economy was what I was going to say. But all that to say, we're not pro-regulation or anti-regulation on Winning Slowly, and we think that the most important thing for a structure is to figure out what regulations best applied will do the most good in a way that is specifically stated as the goal. So you can't have a, a good regulation if there isn't a clear goal for that regulation. Now, the clear goal might be we want to make these companies make more money, and then <laughs> You can have your regulation and it will go in that direction. But without a clear goal, 
there can be no clear regulation. And of course, a clear goal is a necessary but insufficient condition. Wisdom and application is also necessary. But hey, it's life. It's hard. We already knew that. Yep. The music at the beginning of the episode was Jep Shuffle by Holy57. We used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission. Thanks again to Andrew Fallows, Jeremy W. Sherman, and Kurt Klassen for sponsoring the show this month. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can go to patreon.com slash winning slowly to set up recurring contributions, or you can go to cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly for a one-off. 10% of whatever you give us goes to the Internet Archive because, well... Nobody's regulating that we actually back up the internet, and this one's happening entirely on donations, so we're donating to it. As always, we appreciate it when you share this with friends, post it on social media, or rate and review us in iTunes or any other podcast app directory. In addition to helping people know about the show, it's also really heartwarming when we see your reviews. It's true. We'd love for more people to know about the show and see more reviews, so please help us out. We also would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Shoot us an email at hello at winningslowly.org, or you can find us on social media, on Twitter at Winning Slowly, or on Facebook at Winning Slowly Podcast. We will definitely see email the fastest, though, because we just don't social media nearly as much as we used to. And as always, thanks for listening. Broad, broad, broad. (laughs) Everything is broad. Uh, Everything is broadsome. (laughs) Everything is cool when you're part of a team. On the internet. Uh, What if Standard Oil owned Disney? Wow. What if Disney owned Standard Oil? Wow. (laughs) I don't even know, man. I don't even know.